great morning to all of you. It is a good day today. And with that, you know what? I feel like right now you should all just like kind of pass a little knuckle bump to your neighbor because today we reach the end of the Gospel of Luke. Yeah, I know. It's like you did it, man. And it was pandemic edition, right? Like, like we did it live, and then we were digital, and then we were live, and then we were digital, and then we were live. And it was just like, wow, man, that was a lot of stuff over the last three years. And yet we've made it through, and that is really fantastic. And so today is the closer of this series. And then next week, we're going to start a new kind of little summer series thing all about digging out. It's called Digging Out. It's about how you dig out of apathy, how do you dig out of bitterness, how do you dig out of different things, things that are real practical and real helpful for us. But as I was driving up here to the school this morning, I was thinking about if you started with Redemption Church back in 2011, do you know how many books of the Bible you have navigated through in that time? It's pretty amazing to think about it. You all have done Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Who does Leviticus? You all have done Leviticus. Uh, This January, we're going to do Numbers. Yeah, I know. You're all jacked about that, man. Like, you just want to see me try to read those Hebrew names. That's all you want to see. All right, so, but we've done that. We have done, let's see, Ruth. We've done Proverbs. We've done Ecclesiastes. We've done Habakkuk. We've done Luke now, which is pretty rad. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Pretty, pretty amazing. This next winter, we're going to be doing 1 John. You've done a lot of the Bible, right? But what's great is that this whole book is all about Jesus, Right? And that's what we've even seen over the last couple of weeks, that, that, the, that the whole idea of this book is to highlight Jesus. And so in a strange sort of way, while today is the end of the Gospel of Luke, it also signals a whole new beginning. Because that's in many ways what Luke is seeking to do. He wants us to understand that when we finish this story, the story doesn't end. In fact, if anything, as we end the story, the end is the reminder that there is a whole new beginning underway. Because what Luke is getting at ultimately is this message that begins in this little corner of the world, in this Middle Eastern space, is designed to spill out into the world through our lives for those who follow Jesus, take Jesus seriously, and want to really reveal Jesus to the world. Because what we celebrate today is that God came, God lived, God loved, God died, God rose, and as we'll see today, God ascended, so that we would be ambassadors of that message. And so with all of that stated, I want to give you a friendly reminder that we have an app, and in the app, there are notes that you can follow along with today if you'd like to do that, different blanks that you can fill in. All the passages that are going to be walking through are in those notes as well. Also, don't forget on the app, there are great features like archives of what we've done. There is a block on there where you can tap that for any prayer requests. Our leaders love to pray for you. If you have any kind of requests that you would want prayer for, we'd love to do that as well. And all the news of everything that's happening in the church, it's all in the app. But today I highlight that because, again, it's the close of this really rich message on the life of Jesus. And that's an opportunity for us to just kind of follow along and let it sink in a little bit more. And so uh, with all of that kind of put before you, I'm going to go ahead and give a moment for all of us to kind of just reflect, to pray quietly. I'll go ahead and then pray after that, and we'll jump right into the end of Luke chapter 24.
Jesus, we thank you for this journey we've been on as we are reflecting on all that you did, all that you said, uh, all that you accomplished for us. And I pray that as we close this out, it really isn't a closing, but rather it's the opportunity for an applying in a whole new way that, that we'll take seriously what it is you invite us to. And that in taking it serious, we will have freedom and joy. We always say around here that life is better with you. And I know for me, what that means is life is better when I do it your way, when I live out your will, when I focus on your wishes for my life, life is better, and life is better for those around me because you're the priority of my life. Your sacrifice, your love, your grace, when I own that, I know and sense you in ways that are so deep and rich, and it blesses the world around me because it's not about me, but it's about you and how you care for others. And so may we take that lesson to heart. May we live it out in a way that's authentic and from that it fuels us as it refreshes others and worships you. We thank you, Jesus, for this day and for this work from Dr. Luke. And uh, I just thank you for the love and grace you show us. It's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. So for the last couple of weeks, we have been standing as witnesses to the witnesses that are working through the implications of the resurrection, right? So this is kind of the third installment of that scene. And if you remember back, the first scene was filled with wonder, with curiosity, with belief, with doubt. All these different factors were all in there as women come to the tomb, the body's missing, but we don't see Jesus. We just have this announcement that he has risen, he's departed, and everybody's having different responses to this. So that was kind of the first week in looking at the resurrection scene. We don't see the body of Jesus. We just see the disappearance of the body of Jesus. And everybody's wrestling with this. Then we get into the next week. And, and then that next week, we come across a pair of individuals who are on their way to Emmaus, and they're working through all the implications of what's happened. We thought he was Messiah. We thought he was the one. We thought he was going to liberate us. But now he's dead, and rumors are swirling that maybe he's risen, but we don't know what that's about. And while they're discussing all of that, suddenly Jesus appears in their midst. But they don't know it's Jesus, so they're blinded to his person. God just sort of by design says, all right, I don't want you to see who he is just yet. And so they begin to talk. And they're kind of pondering and processing with Jesus as they're walking along. And then from this, there's these weird set of events where Jesus kind of scolds them for their disbelief, maybe not believing the accounts that they've been hearing from that morning. And then he causes them to reimagine the scriptures of the Old Testament in a whole new way. Right? He walks them through the law and the prophets and all the ways that there was this accounting of how the Messiah would come and he would actually suffer and die, but that would be the key to rescuing the world. And then after explaining that, Jesus goes with them to a home. He takes food. He gives it to them. Their eyes are opened and they see him clearly. And in that moment, Eden is undone. The damage of Eden is reversed in this grace and gift of Christ. And as soon as their vision comes, he just disappears. He vanishes. And while he vanishes from their sight, he doesn't, have, doesn't vanish from their soul, right? So there's this enthusiasm, there's this eagerness, there's this whole new sense of, wow, this is really happening. We really just hung out with him. He really has risen. And so they are reignited because of the resurrection. And so if you're taking notes with us this morning, that's the first point in your notes, right? That this idea of resurrection 
takes a group of people that were sorrowful, confused, perplexed, and suddenly they are just lit on fire again with life coursing in their person. So these two individuals, they begin to book it back to the leadership core. Verse 35 of chapter 24. It says, Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. And he says, peace be with you. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking that they were seeing a, in Greek, phantasma. Phantom, a ghost, right? So they're totally freaked out by this. So their first go-to is, an, oh, he really has risen. Their first go-to is, whoa, there's a spooky thing. There's this specter among us now. Now, here's something that's just kind of an interesting little side note when it comes to ghosts and the Hebrew culture. They very much believed in ghosts. They did. Matter of fact, remember that story where Jesus sends his crew to go across the lake and a storm kicks up and they're all freaked out and then he comes walking on the water and they see him and they think he's what? A ghost. So for them, ghosts were like a fact. It wasn't like a question mark. It was to them a fact. In fact, if we jump back into the Old Testament for a second, we see there's this really strange scene where King Saul, who was kind of a train wreck at this point in his life, he decides he wants to talk to the prophet Samuel, but Samuel's dead, right? And, and so from that, he's like, okay, how can I talk to a dead guy? And he goes to the witch of Endor, not where the Ewoks live, different Endor, all right? Goes to the witch of Endor, and he's like, conjure uh, the prophet for me, and she does, the ghost of the prophet comes and talks to King Saul. And by the way, the ghost of the prophet is not happy about it, right? But what you see then is, weirdly enough, there's this idea of ghosts even in the Old Testament. But, but here's the difference, right? When we look at this story, ghosts, the idea of a ghost is the idea of death. It is the spirit of the dead in, in some fashion or form. That's what a ghost is. Remember that little creepy kid in the sixth sense? I see dead people. That's a ghost. But Jesus isn't a ghost, and here's why. Because as he is standing before them, this is not an afterlife story. This is life after life as a story. In other words, resurrection is not about a disembodied person coming and sharing with you. It is about a very much embodied person, a new embodied person, showing up physically before you and beginning to converse with you. That's what's going on right here. And so as Jesus shows up, this is a biological truth. This is a chemical truth. This is a physical truth as well as it being a spiritual truth because what we see in Jesus is radical new life. And so it's not a spirit, it's not a phantom. It's flesh and blood and bone where he had once been dead earlier that day and now he's very much alive. And to reinforce this, right? This is what Luke really wants to go out of his way to do is to get us to understand that don't make a mistake. Don't, don't see the resurrection of Jesus as some spiritualized thing. It's spiritual, but it's not spiritualized. It's very concrete. This leads to number two in your notes, the reinforming of the resurrection, right? So, so Luke wants to ground this uh, pretty concretely. So in verse 38, Jesus says, why are you frightened? Are you kidding? <laughs> of course you'd be frightened. And then he says, and why are your hearts filled with doubt? 
there's such a concrete fact before you. He says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. Can't you see that it's really me? Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies and you see that I do. And as he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now in doing this, it's more than just like, look, I have tangible extremities. He's showing them where his scars were from the events of Friday. And so we're going to get into that in just a minute. Verse 41, as he's saying, look at my hands, look at my feet, touch me, don't you believe? They still stood there in disbelief, but filled with joy and wonder. And so he asked them, guys got anything to eat? And so they give him some broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. And so all of these things Luke is kind of grabbing onto to help us understand what the nature of this event's all about. The hands, the feet, the fish. It's physical. He's chewing. He's interacting. He's sitting down. It's all very matter-of-fact, right? And these are all verifications that what they're seeing is, in fact, what reality is before them. So Jesus is not a force ghost, like Obi-Wan Kenobi coming to Luke and coming from the netherworld. That's not it. No, he is... He is fully embodied, fully physical, fully alive. And it is the Jesus that they knew. It's the Jesus that they walked with, that they learned from, that they talked to, that they did ministry alongside of. It is the same Jesus that they watched be crucified. It's the same Jesus they saw his body was laid in a tomb. It's the same Jesus, but in a whole new kind of way. And so in one sense, yes, it's a spiritual event, but in another sense, it's a very material event. In fact, in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul tries to explain this dynamic to us, this idea of resurrection. So he takes up an entire chapter, chapter 15, and buckle up, I'm going to read to you a lot of chapter 15 here in just a second. Right? But he, he walks through it, and he talks about how if Jesus didn't rise from the dead in a physical form, then our faith is a joke. Toss it out. Do something else, right? He says, but because Jesus rose, our faith is legitimized. And it's serious, and it's true. And he says, in the same way that Jesus rose, that's the prototype that we too will rise in the same way one day. And so at this point where I'm going to start reading in 1 Corinthians, he begins to highlight what that looks like. But I want to let you know it's tough to track. Starting in verse 35, he can foresee that people are going to push back on this idea. And so he says, some may ask, how will the dead be raised and what kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only the bare seed or wheat or whatever you are planting. And then God gives it a new body he wants it to have. Different plants grow from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh. One kind for humans, another kind for animals, another for birds, another for fish. Kind of the short story there is that I guess we're all seeds until we die and then we get to grow into something cool. Then, verse 40, says there are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. There is the glory of the heavenly bodies that is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory while the moon and stars each have another kind. And even the stars differ from each other in their glory. In the same way with the resurrection of the dead, our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they're raised in glory. They're buried in weakness, but they'll be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. 
For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. The scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person. But the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, and then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth. Well, Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we now are like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. Didn't that make perfect sense? It's a, it's a little perplexing. It's a little confusing. It reminds me of Fasini in The Princess Bride, where Wesley says, your intellect is truly dizzying, <laughs> right? It is kind of like that, because you're like, well, Paul, you're, you're using all these metaphors. You're saying all these things. Do you quite understand what you're grippling, grappling with and, and wrestling through and everything else? And Paul just tells us what you're really trying to say. And so in verse 50, he says, here's what I'm trying to say. Dear brothers and sisters, this is what I'm saying, that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. And, and what I like about this is that Paul's revealing enough of the secret to inspire us and move us. But I think even for Paul, there's a bunch that is above his pay grade. Because I don't fully understand it all. I can tell you what I get, but there's a bunch I don't get. But what I do understand is that we will not die, but we will all be transformed. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to life forever and those who are living will also be transformed there's this kind of again the shift of being into another type of being for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die and our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies and so you notice he uses these different descriptors the body is going to be a spiritual one a heavenly one an immortal one a transformed one a resurrected one and we go well what does that fully mean we don't fully know except to say that it is truly spiritual and it's truly physical that's what we know and this is our destiny one day because this was jesus's destiny on this day to come to live to love to die to rise in perfect physical form now again this leaves all kinds of questions like for example Last year, when we were tearing down uh, the, all of the filming stuff in the hub because we weren't going to be digital anymore, one of the big heavy light systems fell on my head, and I still have a dent. If you talk to me, you're going to see the dent. My head looks like the Death Star with a little dent in it, right? Right? It's there for the rest of my life. But I have the question of like, well, then do I have that dent in my resurrected body? I don't know. When I'm resurrected one day, will it be Matt with hair or Matt without hair? I don't know. When I'm resurrected one day, is it going to be 25-year-old Matt, 50-year-old Matt? If I live to be 90, is it going to be 90-year-old Matt? I don't know. Is it going to be 165-pound Matt or 220-pound Matt? I don't know. If a small child dies when they're resurrected, do they stay five years old forever? I don't know. See, all these things I don't know. But what I do know is that when this happens, it will be in the same pattern as Christ. And these broken, decaying, kind of weary structures that we inhabit will be renewed, right? So we don't get rid of the body and upgrade to a new body. Rather, it's the same body upgraded in new ways. It's like the resurrection gives you roids, you know, for eternity. And that's what they're seeing in Jesus, right? 
And what I love about the account that I think is so beautiful, and this is just one of those things that I, I, you don't always notice it when you're just kind of going along, but think about this reality, right? So Jesus is God. Uh, for all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit have been together. For all eternity up to this point of the incarnation, Jesus has been Spirit, just as the Father and the Spirit are Spirit. But then in the great sacrifice of himself, he forever takes on a physical body like us. And then taking on the physical body and coming into the world, he takes scars upon himself for us. And for the rest of eternity, as he has this body, he carries those scars as a reminder of what he has done for us. That's why when you read the book of Revelation, you see the images of the lamb that was slain. Like, that's the reminder. God is so rich in his love and grace that he's willing to give himself away to rescue us. And Jesus is highlighting that in this beautiful scene. And I love it because going back to verse 41 for just a second, uh, I look at the group there, and, and they're standing there, and they're in disbelief, but also joy and wonder, and they're just watching him eat. Have you ever had somebody just sit there and watch you eat? It's weird, right? But they're just like, this can't be, but this is awesome. This doesn't happen, but it is. Like, they had seen resuscitation, but resurrection was altogether different. And so they're just blown away and they're taking it in, right? And all of this is, again, just reinforcing the physics of the event. But these physics are meant to then move into the metaphysics, what this is all about, what the implications of this resurrection is. And so that moves us into number three in your notes, the revelation at the resurrection. And when I say revelation, I don't mean the book of revelation. I mean the idea that something is being revealed now that Jesus is risen and is sitting there before him, gnawing on some broiled fish. He says to them, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, right? So he told them that, and the whole time they're like, I don't get it. What do you talk, there's, there's nothing about what has happened that was in the Old Testament, and then what does it say here? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so it's kind of no wonder they didn't see it. They couldn't see it because it wasn't on the surface to see. They needed to have this new infusing of insight from him. And so he gives them this insight. And now they're realizing, oh, that's where you were in Moses. Oh, that's where you were in the prophets. That's where you were in the Psalms. All the wisdom literature of our scriptures. Now we get it. And then from that he says, see, yes. See, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. Now, we wrestled with this a little bit last week that it was not in the Old Testament clear at all that the Messiah would suffer and die. It just wasn't, right? There had to be this reimagining of the Old Testament for them to see it, and Jesus engages in this with them. Just as he did with the pair on the road to Emmaus, he now does it with the group that is here. If you missed last week, go back and listen, and you can understand the spirit of this whole thing. Because again, nobody saw it coming. Nobody saw it coming, and understandably. If there's any pattern that maybe you could see, it was this. What was very common throughout the Old Testament is the word of God comes to the people, and the people reject the word of God. And yet God is still faithful to rescue the people. Maybe that's your pattern. The word comes to the people. The people reject the word, but the covenant of God, the word of God, the promise of God is faithful 
and still rescuing the people. And that's exactly what you have now in the the person of Christ. The very essence of the word comes into the world. The world rejects the word, but the word is relentless and fearless to rescue the world still. He will rescue Israel, and that's the promise of Romans 11. He's not done with Israel. He will literally go to the end of Romans 11 just sometime today, and you will see where he says he will rescue all Israel. He's relentless in his promise. And in the same way, there was a promise given that he would reach the nations to rescue the nations, to bring flourishing to the nations. That's been the promise. It was given in the book of Genesis. It was reinforced in the book of Isaiah. It was displayed in the book of Jonah. And now it's being fulfilled in the book of Luke. And this is why Jesus goes on to say in verse 47, it was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name, in the authority of Jesus, right, to all the nations. He's like, this is where we're going now. This is why the end is a whole new beginning. And what is this message to go to all the nations? It begins in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. See, the goal of the gospel of God has always been a goal for the world, to reach and touch and bless and change the nations. It starts in the city of Jerusalem, but it breaks the lines really quickly, starts to just go all over the place. And what's the message? Three key words. The first word here is sin, right? Understanding the nature of sin. Sin is our universal sickness. It is the virus that we carry, every one of us, right? And the word sin sometimes, it gets used with aggressiveness and I think even abusiveness at times, like it's a proud person person telling somebody else how sinful they are. The spirit of this word simply means to cross a line or to miss a mark, Right? And, and the reality is we've all crossed lines. We've all missed marks. I've done it like 25 times since I woke up at four this morning. Right? We just do. We're very flawed. We're, we're fallible in so many ways. And so part of this is just the ownership of sin. That sin hurts God. It hurts others. It hurts myself, right? And I'm not immune from the damage that it can do because I miss marks and cross lines, and so I have a problem. The good news is that there is forgiveness, right? So we start to buckle the words together. And what I love about the forgiveness that God is offering is it's not simply, okay, I will pardon you, I will acquit you, and that's it. No, it's something deeper. This idea of God's forgiveness is that God gives up even the desire to think he needs to follow through any more than when he finally forgives, so here's what I mean by this. Uh, you and I, when somebody comes to us and says, I, I did wrong by you, will you forgive me, or whatever else, or we have to issue forgiveness to somebody, uh, we tend to forgive, but we don't always tend to forget. Or we forgive, but we're still wrestling through our own wounds in relationship to maybe the offense that was done to us. So we do the right thing, but we have to grow in feeling in accordance with the right thing that we did. Like, that's the nature of our forgiveness. Like, I'm gonna forgive you, but if you do it again, I'm not gonna be a sucker, right? That, that's our human forgiveness. But God's forgiveness is perfect and pure and total and full and absolutely liberating. And so this is part of the message too. We have a sin problem, but God's got a radical forgiveness solution. But how do we buckle the problem of our sin to the power of his forgiveness? How do these two join? Well, it's with that word, 
repent. And that's another word that I think sometimes has been used with velocity. Like, you need to repent. And it's like, man, you know what the word repent means? To change your thinking. It's a shifting of mindset, right? Where you start to think about things like sin, and you go, wait, I thought sin was me just being my own person, plotting my own course, doing my own thing, and as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, it's fine, but... But then you realize, no, man, sin, sin enslaves me. Sin brings decay in the world. Sin, sin grieves God, and it enslaves my person, and it hurts the people around me. I, I don't want sin in my life, right? So you begin to rethink what, what sin is and how sin takes more than sin ever gives, and ultimately how sin grieves God, and there is no way to please God and try to retain our autonomy and our sin. That also means thinking de- different about Jesus, This whole series has been called The Scandalous God because everything Jesus does, it's scandalous, right? And when people look at Jesus and what he communicates, it looks like weakness, it looks like kind of being naive, it looks like folly, but to think different says, no, 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 what Jesus communicates and what he calls us to do is actually strong and wise and profound if you embrace it. Yeah, it's upside down and backwards. It's not the way the world works, but it's the way the world is changed if we own it. In fact, if anything, this whole idea is thinking different about the throne that is in our world. See, the throne that is in our world, and this is a wee tiny throne comparatively, but the throne in our world is a throne that we have to decide on. In many cases, the throne is one that we, which we choose to sit, right? So we, we kind of look and go, this is where the world orbits. It's around me, what I think, what I desire, what I want, my perspectives, my own kind of stitched together philosophy for life or whatever else. And we want to sit on that throne. And and what Jesus does is says, I want you to rethink this. Is it working well for you? Is it working well for those around you? Is this really going to lead you to what you most desire, true lasting fulfillment, you on the throne? See, he wants us to rethink that. Now, sometimes we rethink and go, okay, how about this? I half cheek it. And then Jesus, you put on a cheek and I'll have a cheek. We both share a cheek and we'll share the throne. We'll do a co-throne, right? And he's like, well, that's not really how it works either. You got to rethink that. It's not a co-throne. No, you, you relinquish your life. You die to yourself, right? He says this back in chapter nine. You want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. It's a relinquishing of the throne. And instead it's Jesus, you are now center and on the throne in my life, and everything I do orbits around you. It's about you. It's not about me. It's about your mission for the world. It's not about my priorities for my life. It's about realizing that life is, in fact, better with you when I do it your way because it enriches the lives of those around me when I do it your way. See, this is the message proclaimed, these three simple words, sin, forgiveness, repentance, See, repent means to turn to Jesus, to think like Jesus, to act like Jesus, to love like Jesus, and to be an agent of healing for the world, just as Jesus has called us to do it. This is why he adds in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses. Now, when this is said, this was said to them in that room on that day. But I believe Luke puts it in here for us as a reminder Not just simply say, hey, you've seen it, but it's this idea of you've seen and then you share it. You've been moved by it and you want to communicate how you've been moved by this thing. That's what it means to be a witness. 
And for us, and this is so important, please stick with me here for just a second. It's so important that when we talk about being witnesses for Christ in our current world, that means to, ready? Show and share. To show Jesus and share Jesus. And this is why I say stick with me here for a second. Um, I think in the current climate that we inhabit, our tribe, if you will, the tribe that I'm a part of and get to pastor within, is kind of this tribe that it would be considered a conservative, evangelical Christian tribe. That's who we are. And the world that looks at us, the disbelieving or the disenfranchised or the departed from the church or whatever else, they look at us as a tribe and they're jaded and they're frustrated and they're combative. And not simply because, well, Christians get persecuted, though there's some truth to that. But part of it is because they go, you know what, when when we've watched your actions and we've seen your words and we witness your decisions and we see your dispositions, uh, it just doesn't seem in harmony with Jesus to us. Like there's Jesus and his priorities and then there's Christians and their agenda and they don't seem to be playing on the same team to so many people. Which is why then it's so important that we think in terms of I need to show something different so I have then the credibility to share with them this powerful message. Because I try to talk to a lot of people who are disbelievers or who have left the Christian faith or whatever else, and I try to understand, like, how do you see us? And they don't say, well, first off, loving, and so joyful, and peacemaking, and so humble and gracious and kind and compassionate and thoughtful. You know, you're not combative, you're not, like, they have opinions that aren't great, and, and, and again, some of those are perhaps not earned by us as individuals, but maybe it gets earned by our tribe. And it's our job to say, you know what? Can I, can I show you who Jesus really is? First, by embodying him, by embodying his lifestyle. This idea that, again, what he says is upside down and backwards, but I'm going to do it even though it's uncomfortable. I'm going to embody his lifestyle, and then from that, I'm going to explain to you how Jesus comes to give abundant life, and life is better with him, right? Now, I admit that's hard. It really is hard to, to shut down kind of our, our Western disposition of personal rights and freedoms and my way is the way. Like, that's a hard thing to shut down, to suddenly kind of embrace this whole turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemy disposition to Jesus. It's incredibly hard. I find it hard. And I think it's really important. Well, Jesus knows it's hard. And so I love what he says next. He says, and now I will send you the Holy Spirit. So he gives this lofty, challenging thing. I want you to live like me, embody my message, take this message to the world. But don't worry, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, just as my Father promised. Stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Now, again, in kind of a technical way, this was to them in that room on that day. And in about 40 days, the Holy Spirit comes in a radical and powerful way on their lives. And they're like speaking in tongues and doing miracles. And I mean, it's pretty revolutionary what happens when the Spirit comes into their lives. And uh, for many of us, that's not our daily reality, right? In the same way. But the promise is no less potent or profound. In other words, what is true for us is when we focus on the Spirit— Every day we're like, Holy Spirit, lead me, guide me, teach me, show me, work in me. The more we do that intentionally, the more his dispositions and agenda and sensitivities flow through our lives. 
So the key is staying attached to the source so the source then pours through you. This is why when Paul talks about like the fruit of the Spirit, he doesn't say, hey, everybody work really hard to produce fruit of the Spirit. No, what he says is, no, reside in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, and this is what he does through you. So it just takes the emphasis of us saying, I want my life dominated by you, Holy Spirit. What does that take? I just want to be close to you, and then you do this in me. That's the heart behind that whole endeavor. And I believe the more we seek to incarnate Jesus authentically and rely on the Holy Spirit kind of profoundly, the more than we will be able to tell this message sincerely in a way where people go, yeah, I see it in your life. This is something different. I want what I see. Because seeing in a lot of ways in our lives is a part of the believing. They go, this must be true. You're a different people. I want to be a different person. That's the heart. That was a quick little sidebar. Just what I love about the New Testament and the different writers of the New Testament is they each kind of have a, a different take on how they communicate the Holy Spirit. Like there's diversity in the New Testament writers. So like if you were to read John, for example, he's super cool because he's like, you know, Jesus is a little bit like, or like the Holy Spirit's like the sequel of Jesus. So Jesus came and he taught and he guided and he comforted and he helped. And now the Holy Spirit comes and he continues that same ministry of guiding and teaching and comforting and, and helping us. And that's John's focus. And then Paul rolls in and he says, oh, you know what I love about the Holy Spirit? He's the foundation of Christian life and he is the expression of Christian ministry. And he really focuses on the Holy Spirit there. Luke, however, has the most um, uncomfortable Version of how he communicates the Holy Spirit. And I picked this up from Fred Craddock. I thought it was so good. He says, The Holy Spirit in Luke moves Christians to go into places they would not otherwise go and to act in ways that they would not otherwise engage. Right? And, and this is the essence of it. Right? If we're going to do this well, we have to do it in Him. And personally, I think this is what's most needed in our world right now. Like, I don't think we need more bold evangelism in our world in the sense of I think there is some bold evangelism going on that's sometimes more anti-evangelism than evangelism, right? Because it's aggressive or it's assertive or it's combative. It's more worried about social engineering than new life in Jesus. I think what we need more of is what Jesus is getting at here. We need the Holy Spirit to be active and alive in God's people in such a way that we communicate in his way with his grace and his sensitivity to see others come to life in him. That's what we're to be about. Because you know what? We have a lot more to do as far as communicating this upside down, backwards, spirit-fueled, scandalous God. Like we have a lot more to communicate. And we want to do it with our life as well as our words. Because here's the deal when it comes to this particular message of the Bible. We've reached the end, which is number four in your notes. We've reached the end, and with it, a whole new beginning. And so, verse 50, Jesus led them to Bethany, and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Now, we tend to get kind of caught up in the physics of it, like, whoa, that dude just levitated up into the sky. But for them watching this, they're not thinking like, hey, he flies. That's not their big focus. Their big focus is, this is what a king does when they ascend to their throne, right? And, and that's kind of our imagery here. I'm not saying it wasn't a physical event. What I'm saying is they go, this physical event means something much more deep. 
that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king. The king is taking his throne. The planet is his. The planet is not Satan's any longer. It is not controlled by the devil. Jesus is now the one that rules and reigns over everything. He is the one that is in work in the world. He is the one with all authority in the world. And he stands with us as we go out into the world as well. So we become emissaries and ambassadors of the king who reigns. And the way we're emissaries is what I've been saying. We emulate his life and words and wisdom and witness in our lives. And so while he ascends in glory, he's also ascending to his glorious throne. This is why in verse 52 it says, so they worshiped him and then they returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy and they spent all of their time in the temple praising God. The end. And a new beginning. And the new beginning is interesting to me here. It might be easy to overlook until you stop and think about it. Um, what they're doing is leveling up right now. And they're not leveling up because he went up. They're leveling up in their perspective of who he is. Right? Because notice what it says they do. They worship him. They worship him. Remember, everybody on the scene is a good Jewish boy and a good Jewish girl, and they've learned the Old Testament, especially the, the first couple big commands, like don't worship any other gods. Don't have an image of any other god. Like, they know this one. And, and so for them to worship Jesus is one of two things. It's blasphemy, or it's authenticity. In other words, it's blasphemy if he's not God, but it's authenticity if he, in fact, is God. And that's where they level up, because remember earlier in chapter 24? Well, who was this guy? Well, he was a man, he was from Nazareth, he was a great prophet, he did some miracles, he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and man. We thought he was Messiah, but now we know he's God. Far greater than just Messiah. He is God himself come for us. And so they worship, right? Worship is what fueled their joy. Joy energizes their praise, and they're just in that loop, man. Worshiping, joy-filled, and praising and with that, ready to go as they wait for the Spirit to go and be witnesses of this message of sin, forgiveness, repentance, and how that changes lives. That's still our mission today, right? I mean, the way Luke kind of wraps up his gospel in that final chapter is kind of the pattern. It's the reminder and remembrance that God has come, God has lived, God has loved, God has died, God rose, God has ascended, and then he calls us to be witnesses of that message, sharing with others that, hey, I was a sinner, and God offered forgiveness, and it changed my thinking, and I relied on him, and he came, and his life is in me, and now his life of the Spirit in me is here in the world to help guide and show you. You can't see, I get it. I couldn't see until he helped me see, and I got it, and I want to be in your life so that he might help you see, and that you get it too, and you walk with him. That is the heart of the scandalous God. That is the essence of Luke's message, and that is the mission he gives to us. So right now, I just want to encourage you. Find that space, maybe just close your eyes, bow your heads. And, and, and there's a couple of different places I want to go with this. Maybe for some watching or some with us today, you know, you've heard all of this, and yet you haven't taken that step of what bridges forgiveness and sin, that repentance, and you haven't said, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to get off my throne. I don't want to half-cheek it. I want you to totally have it. It's my life is yours now. 
I've been doing my thing, but I want to do your thing. Forgive me, rescue me, use me. You make that your prayer in your way. That is what this good news is all about. That is how one is moved from death to life and newness of life in that. The other thing, maybe for those of us who follow Jesus, is are we witnesses of this? Both in our actions and in our words. Are we embodying Jesus and explaining Jesus in our world? Because we are the ambassadors. We are the witnesses to these things. And that is what he calls us to. And so if you don't follow Jesus and you want to follow Jesus, man, make that prayer your prayer. If you follow Jesus but you don't tend to share others or with others about Jesus, say, Jesus, help me to do that. Give me the open doors and the opportunities and I guarantee you they will be there. Jesus, I thank you so much for your life that we were able to look at over these last few years. I pray that we won't just simply look, read, learn, and walk, but rather we would look, read, learn, and live like you. We thank you, Jesus, for your grace toward us and your good name. Amen.